Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, Lisa. Victoria? Yes, Adario. Is the new mic plugged in? Yes, Adario. Shall we begin? Yes, Adario. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I always wanted to do that. Welcome to the second installment of Mars Magazine. Uh, this is Adario Strange with... Vic Song. Vic Song. And we are back, hopefully sounding a little bit better. Um, got some, A lot better, maybe. Yeah, got some new equipment. But let's just jump right into it. Uh, today, we got some sad news that the legend, the, the master of funk... Pop, R&B, rock, Prince has died. Uh, he was found uh, in an elevator, I believe, at uh, Paisley yep. Park in Minneapolis on uh, Thursday, uh, April 21st. Um, and right now, there's just a ton of stuff, a ton of news articles, ton of retrospectives. And we just wanted to mention it because he's not really, you know, in our wheelhouse in terms of science fiction. However, I think he's worth mentioning because um, aside from, well, well, first of all, he is one of the early artists who back in 1994, he was part of this trend where uh, music artists, popular music artists like David Bowie and Prince and a few others uh, put together interactive CD-ROMs. And he, uh, Prince had one called Prince Interactive in 1994. <laughs> and, it's very cleverly named. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. It, well, well, for then, for 1994, that was like very futuristic. Um, now it's just like interactive is just a word. But back then it was probably, uh, you know, I don't remember well, it to be honest, but it, it was probably pretty futuristic sounding. Well, and also in the 90s, we were in the midst of a of a huge VR boom, um, which we're kind of getting back into now, but it was really big back then. Right. And if you go online, it's pretty hard to find. But if you look hard enough, you can find screenshots of printing the Prince Interactive experience. And it was just like you would go around his Paisley Park studio and, you know, look for his symbol at that time in 1993 is when he changed his name to what people called a glyph. I'm going to call it an emoji because <laughs> they, because yeah. it had no name, but what he called it was the love symbol. And I think that was actually, that leads me to my, ne my next point, which is, you know, a lot of people talk about the future and being futurists and, you know, living in the future and forward thinking and being, you know, being lovers of science fiction and so on and so forth. But if few people actually are bold enough to live their life, you know, in the future. And I think by, you know, you can say, well, it was a legal thing or whatever. And he was trying to get out of his contract with Warner Brothers. But the fact is, he's the first person that I know who actually changed his name to an emoji. The glitch. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's really interesting because I don't I'm going to be upfront and admit that I don't know a whole lot about Prince other than when I was a kid, they would say things like the artist formerly known as Prince because that's what he wanted to go as. And I was like, wow, that's a really long name to be a musician of. And I come from an in immigrant family. So Prince is like um, his music wasn't something that was played around in my house a lot, even though I knew who he was. 
You mean you, you the, the assless chaps and everything that that wasn't like a staple of your household? No. Well, actually, my first um, my first experience with Prince was just watching the TV and. Um, I forget what channel it was. I don't really know what I was doing. I was just watching the TV and Prince was on and he turns around and, you know, assless chaps. And then my mother comes running in. My mother comes running in and she's from a very, um, well, we're Korean, uh, Korean American. And my mom is from the motherland, the old country, the old continent, whatever you want to call it. And my mom came in and she's like, what is on the TV? Is this what they teach young children in America? I, I, I no, no. So forever after my 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 thoughts of Prince was my mother just barging in and going, sex on TV. Well, no. <laughs> well, speaking of Prince and sex, another thing that's interesting about him in terms of people who live in the future, and it, this, I don't know, I kind of feel like um, we talked about. You know, off mic, we talked about Sense8 from the Wachowski sisters and we haven't talked about it on the pod, but we've both we've both seen it. And it's kind of an interesting show because it it, a lot of it deals with gender identity, you know, transgender, uh, lesbian, gay men. Uh, There there's there are, uh, you know, so-called straight people in the film that kind of, uh, I guess, have an out of body experience and have like an orgy with basically everyone, a woman, a man, a transgender person. Yeah, so it's that show is interesting because that's happening now. But what's interesting about Prince is he seems to have always kind of played with this notion of gender. Um, he was always, you know, at least from my knowledge, always, you know, uh, masculine in terms of how he dealt with, you know, men mm-hmm. and women. And I'm not aware of him ever being, you know, uh, bisexual or gay. Um, my understanding is they mainly, you know, hooked up with women. But if you, you know, just looking at him, I mean, there was a lot of uh, yeah. kind of gender. He he definitely played up the androgynous look right. much in the same way that Bowie would right. play on the androgynous look. Um, but... You know, I think I saw on Twitter today a bunch of people just saying some things like, oh, now that we've lost Bowie and we've lost Prince, we've kind of lost two alternative versions of what masculinity could look like. So I was looking on Twitter today and there were, uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but there was a tweet which said, you know, now that we've lost Bowie and we've lost Prince, we've lost two forms of what alternative masculinity might look like. Uh, You know, not the typical macho macho but men who are kind of flirting with the line of being very in touch with their femininity that kind of thing which you know it's it's very true and it was very forward of him to be comfortable and do it on such a public scale (laughs) i'm gonna miss him um i i have to be honest i'm actually a bigger fan of prince than I really talk about because I, I don't know. I, I feel like, um, you know, there are some musicians that you have a very private personal relationship with. Right. And he's definitely one of those for me. I, I really, you know, I, one of my favorite um, albums of his is uh, Madhouse 8, which is like one of his jazz. Well, you know, a lot of people don't know about it. I mean, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't know about it. And it's like when he made an attempt to just uh, produce an entirely instrumental jazz album. Um but yeah, love Prince. We'll miss him, and I will weep for him privately later. <laughs> um, Wear purple tomorrow. 
Yeah. So moving on, earlier this week, we also had 420 Day. And <laughs> yeah, so I don't know how many of you out there are uh, indulge in the smoking of the weeds. But um, it, you know, the, the thing is, this day has become so popular that even people who aren't uh, marijuana smokers are getting in, making jokes, writing stories about it, uh, you know, looking at it, I think, in a different way, you know, not not so much as like, um, you know, a negative drug per se, more more, more like, you know, something that's, uh, I guess, recreational. Um, and along those lines, uh, Comedy Central put, I guess, a, what do you call it, a short, a miniseries called Time Traveling Bong. And <laughs> it stars Alana Glazer uh, from Broad City. She's the the one on broad like the, you have the two women on Broad City. One's kind of the quiet straight person, the other you know like straight in terms mm-hmm. of comedy, the straight man, and then one the other's the wacky one. The wacky one is Alana Glazer, so she's on this uh, tra- time traveling bong. And the other one, the other lead is Paul W. Downs, and he's also on Broad City. He's the guy who is Abby's boss at okay. the fitness center. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, and um, there's not a lot of science. Um, <laughs> I mean, in short, spo- spoilers for time traveling bong. In short, two people from the future ap- appear in the present, get hit by a car, and their bodies are are taken away by an ambulance. And uh, Ilana Glazer and Paul W. Downs, who in this little mini series are cousins who live together, they <laughs> notice. Oh, wait a minute! These these two people who just popped out of nowhere, who who were dressed in futuristic clothes, they drop something. What what is this? It looks like a bong. And then they sit down and they bring it into the house and they start looking at it and examining it. And of course, they find out that it's a time traveling bong. And oh my god, it's like hot tub time machine except with a bong. Basically, basically. And so, but they, I think what they did was pretty interesting. Um, I don't know that I would say it was high quality. In terms of this is worthy of a series or anything, or they should have made this into a movie. I'm glad they didn't do this as a movie because I don't think, I don't think it would have held up. Well, um, you know, I saw a hot tub time machine, and I was just like, this, this is like, this felt like a joke in a sketch that got really stretched out. So I'm glad they kept it to a shorter medium. Yeah, and what's interesting is like at the end, again, spoilers for time traveling bong. Um, at the end. Again, as I said, there's no science. There's no real science in it. But at the end, they <laughs> they do this really cool thing where they're kind of like asking each other all of these kind of like time travel geek questions that they know, you know, time travel movie geeks will be asking. Huh. And they start asking each other these questions. This is like in like the waning moments of, of the last episode. And as they're walking into the house... <laughs> They get inside the doorway, and Paul W. Downs' character says, actually, I figured it out. I have a rock-solid, tight explanation for all of this. See, what happens is, and then the door closes, and that's the end. So so it's a big cop-out, but it's comedy, so I get it. But um, I I think um, if you're a purist, a time travel movie purist, this is definitely not for you. (laughs) But if, if you're just... If you like Alana Glazer's work, which I do, I love. I mean, I, this is—I think this might be the first thing I've seen of her. Not that's not Broad City. Um, I could tell she was a little. Seemed like she was a little shaky. Um, she mm-hmm. didn't seem as at home as she is in Broad City. But 
as the episodes wore on, like seemed like she got a little com- more comfortable. But as a science fiction miniseries, it was okay. Um, but I can barely call it a science fiction <laughs> series because well, they, well, you know. time travel is time travel. I think that lands you squarely into science fiction, just because. Well, I mean, right now our only form of time travel is going forward, right? So. Well, they, yeah, they went backwards, forwards, and actually, they had some pretty good special effects when they went into, like, a prehistoric era. They were like dinosaurs. Huh. It, you know, it was pretty good. It was, like, pretty well done. Um, and they went far into the future. So it was, it, there were some funny moments. Um, I would, I, I'm guessing it was, it's probably better if you're smoking weed. Yeah, that's just my assumption. So, well, you know, some people would say everything is better if you're smoking weed. Yeah, maybe that was the maybe that was the way you're supposed to watch it. You know, on weed. Speaking (laughs) of uh, things that you maybe should watch while you're smoking weed, um, the Twilight Zone is coming back yet again. Uh, As I mentioned last week, this is like one of my favorite. All time. This is I consider this my science fiction bible. Okay, this is the series created by Rod Serling um, is coming back, but it's coming back in an interactive form. And huh. yeah, what they're going to do is a guy named Ken Levine, who is a video game developer, Bioshock, yeah. right? Right, Bioshock. Okay. He worked on Bioshock. He's working um, to produce basically. He's calling it – someone on Twitter asked him, like, is this a game or not? And he claims that it is, It is in fact, not a game. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so it's, it's basically going to be kind of an experience that allows you to step-by-step step, um, go through different stories and kind of choose your direction. And we don't know if the ultimate outcome is the same no matter what direction you choose or if, you know, you, if they're like these kind of almost infinite – you know, uh, possibilities. I, I'm imagining it must, you, you have to always, you know, have the same outcome. I don't know. But the company that he's doing it with is a company called Interlude. Right. Now, okay. Interlude, a few years ago, they produced a, um, a music video for Bob Dylan. And what it was, was it was this. Um, okay. Yeah. Did you did you see this? Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, I've seen this. This It's the, it's the like a Rolling Stone video, right? It's the one where you can like flip through channels. Right. And so, okay, yeah. Yeah, and it's like you're flipping through cable channels and every person in on each channel starts singing the song like in sync. Um so it's really it's really cool like like what they did was really cool. And so I guess Interlude the company is equipped to do this and I'm guessing Ken Levine is equipped to do this. But I got to be honest, I'm not that excited because you know, what I love about the Twilight Zone is that it's it's about stories. It's about mm-hmm. it's, it, 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 I, I feel like every time I, I watch an episode of the Twilight Zone, I'm looking at old school story craft. And um, I don't know, I guess I, I, I my hope is that if you're going to do something like this, do it with something that's a new property. Or something that's more recent. I feel like the Twilight Zone is almost. This is probably just my bias talking. Because well, again, you know, I, I'm I'm I've got the opposite reaction. I'm kind of excited by it. There's been such a huge, I think, push towards more interactive storytelling, whether it's in games or it's in theater now. Theater is now doing interactive stuff, which is pretty cool. 
but especially in games, like, have you played the Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, like kind of choose your, I don't want to say choose your adventure, but it's something like, it's an interactive game. I've played, get- played choose your adventure style games. I haven't played those before. Well, for the Game of Thrones one, I'll use that one as the example. That sh- follows a smaller family in the kind of the northern Stark territory, uh, the Forrester family, which is actually a family in the book. Very minor. Okay, easy, 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 easy. Very minor. <laughs> I, can tell, I can tell your Game of Thrones uh, muscle is kicking in. Uh, I know. It's, 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 I mean, what can I say? I love that show uh, and the books. But in this particular game, you follow this family and you have to make choices based on prompts that are given. And you can curry favor with different, like, major characters like Marjorie Tyrell or Tyrion Lannister. And it'll change somewhat the impact of storyline, but there is an overarching storyline that you cannot veer from. So I think it's possible to do something interactive with The Twilight Zone in the same way and still maintain a really overarching story craft. Well, if anyone listening, if you want to maybe dive deeper into what Ken Levine has planned. Um, He has confirmed on Twitter that there's a, well, there's a video on YouTube uh, titled narrative Legos with Ken Levine. And it's a talk that he gave at the game developers conference in 2014. And he's confirmed that what he's doing with the twilight zone is, is basically along the same lines as what he's talking about in this YouTube video, narrative Legos. So take a look at that. And, Hopefully that'll give you some clue and, you know, you can make your own assumptions from that. But it's interesting. That actually kind of leads us into our next topic, which is a new film that dropped uh, Google dropped this uh, virtual reality film this past week, uh, directed by Justin Lin, uh, the director of uh, a couple of Fast and Furious movies and the new Star Trek Beyond movie that's coming up. Oh, Uh, I I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's Justin Lin. And... The VR film is called Help, and it's amazing. I was blown away. Um, it's it, it's super great, and I'm just thinking about the title and how great the title is. In well, retrospect, yeah. Well, why don't why don't you tell tell us like what happened? Like what what's the general uh, plot? So the general plot is you you're just kind of in a city, and you're walking around, and you come across a police officer and a young woman and they're basically running away from a gigantic monster and it takes you onto the subway into a tunnel out of that and then you know uh why why i say the title help is cool is because you're thinking that they're the ones asking for help and that because they're running away from this gigantic monster but it turns out the monster is asking help from them and there's like a he's cute he's not a he, monster yeah no he he like there's like a little glowy light the lady who you've been following this entire time said some stuff they have a king kong slash um you know beauty meets the beast moment and he turns into a cute little buddy and all he wanted was help right right and Warm it, fuzzies. Just, one thing that i i'm just the beginning of it of the film is he actually lands on earth as a meteor or I guess it's a crash land landed ship or meteor, but there's like some crash landed object that he emerges from. And that part really, I think I watched that part over and over and over again, because if you watch that part, 
again, remember what we're talking about is a virtual reality film. So when the, the crash happens, as the creature is kind of like composing himself and about to emerge from the wreckage, you can actually look around and see the city of Los Angeles and you see these lights and the, the scenery and it looks real. It's, it's really amazing. Um, yeah, so, you know, I actually missed the crash land because I was too busy looking around at the other stuff. I was like, oh, I can look up at the sky or I can look at my feet. I can look around, you know? And so. You know what? So that's a good point. So what the, re, the way that kind of links back to what we were talking about with the Twilight Zone is it's a repeated it, what what it what this showed me because I've experienced a lot of VR. I write about VR a lot um, and I'm kind of OK, let me stop for a second. So about. A year and a half, two years ago at um, CES in Las Vegas, Oculus gave me a demo of their latest version. This is before it came out just recently. Um, this is like th- this was their latest version of the Oculus Rift, um, like their their latest and best. And it was called the Crescent Bay version. And they let me see the demo. And it was just it was astounding. And there was one part in the demo where you're put in the middle of a cop, uh, a group of cops uh, battling a giant robot in the middle of a city street. And at one point during the battle, they slow down and, and, and the bullets and the lasers and everything are like in like slow motion. And you can look around the bullets and you can look around the people around you. And it was and I all I thought after that was like, oh, my God, when we get full length feature movies like this, this is going to be insane. And so since then, I haven't really seen, you know, many other well done examples of, Mm -hmm. you know, a live action uh, VR film. And I feel like this is the first one, like a lot of VR that we see, a lot of VR that I've sampled is animation, or you know, CGI or something like that. This was live action and this was really well done. And so, again, back to the, the Twilight Zone thing, you know. This is, I think VR might be the perfect, and and by the way, Ken Levine didn't say anything about VR, but it seems like VR might be the perfect uh, platform to do this kind of choose your own adventure thing. Because, you know, by nature of what it is, you ha- it, it requires repeated viewings. You know? Right. Yeah, no. Um, so what I'm going to kind of mention now is like, have you ever been to an inac- interactive theater experience? I, well, I went to um, Sleep No More. Okay, so I've also been to Sleep No More, and if you're not in New York or you're not in a place where it has uh, interactive theater, Sleep No More is this, well, it's, you go to this hotel, it's called the McKittrick Hotel on the west side, you basically are experiencing Macbeth and Hitchcock's Rebecca at the same time. Okay, that just, that just, that just went over characters. my head. That just went over my head. So wait, so just take, let's step back for a second. So you go to a real location, right? Yes. Okay, so this is a real location in Manhattan, and you actually mm-hmm. walk through a door, and then what happens? Like, what, what, what actually happens once you walk through the you door? Are, you are thrust into the events of Macbeth. You are, so this is like what a virtual reality movie might be like, except it's not virtual reality. It's, it's reality. It is like if Macbeth was updated to a 1930s hotel. So what I was thinking was this really kind of brought me back to that experience because the entire time I was in Sleep No More, I had intense FOMO or fear of missing out. It felt to me like you couldn't 
get everything on the first time through for Sleep No More. You would have to go back again and have multiple tries at trying to follow different characters, different plot lines, different stories of what's happening. So I feel like the one thing about um, a virtual reality movie, and maybe studios would be really happy about this, is that people would have to pay so many times uh, um, multiple viewings to get the full experience of it. Yeah, and the other thing um, that we haven't mentioned is everyone wears masks in the uh, once you go through, you know, the front door and, and the experience starts. And what that does, I think, is it kind of helps to kind of put you in this new world because no one's really looking at each other. They're looking at masks. And so everyone's kind of free to react and and you know, mingle with whoever they want. And it's it's kind of like um, eyes wide shut in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so it, it's really weird. And but I think it's a great touchstone to kind of uh, or a great proof of concept that, you know, uh, choose your own adventure, virtual reality uh, experiences are viable. It's just a matter of, um, I guess, filmmakers changing their language, their storytelling language. And and I think that's kind of what Ken Levine's doing, and uh, as well as Justin Lin. Justin Lin's story is definitely not choose your own adventure. It's it's a mm-hmm. linear narrative, but you can kind of see the beginnings of what's possible. You know. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because, like, let's say you would just have to write movies so differently for virtual reality. Either you would have to force the audience to go along with the main character or if you really wanted to create an immersive and expansive world what if you could follow i don't know the bad guy and follow his trajectory while other people follow the protagonist it would be like a real 360 you wouldn't have scenes that happen off screen everything would be on screen but i can't imagine the logistics going into filming all of that so justin lynn uh the film's name is help um, there, you can watch it, um, like you can look at it in 360 on YouTube using your cursor, or the, you can download an app for Android or for iOS. And that's free, that's online right now. Lastly, in news, we want to talk about Ray Kurzweil and his interview with Playboy. Um, it was super long. Um, for- Why don't you... Why don't you explain who Ray Kurzweil is? Okay, yeah, good. So Ray Kurzweil, that's hard. Actually, that's hard. So <laughs> actually, I interviewed him about 10 years ago. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I, I've had some experience with him. He's an inventor. Um, he's invented uh, musical instruments. Um, he has tons of patents. Um, but in recent years, what he's most known for is being obsessed with uh, the singularity, uh, the singularity being uh, this notion that there will be a certain point in time in the future where uh, computers will uh, become self-aware and leapfrog humanity and things will change instantaneously because, you know, just they'll, they'll, the computers will have some sort of super, super, super mind, super hive mind. By the way, side note, I'm, I'm kind of. I don't know. I'm kind of off that train because I kind of feel like if that were to happen, <laughs> why would they tell? Why, why would the computers tell us? Wouldn't they just? And I actually saw this. Um, I, I saw a conversation about this like earlier this week, where someone said the Turing test is meaningless because if computers actually did become conscious and you know, and they, they kind of knew what was going on, wouldn't they just lie to us 
and fail the tests on purpose? That's a that's a complicated question because would they have been taught to lie? Well, no, no. But I mean, this is assuming that the computer, the art, the artificial intelligence, kind of crunches the sum of human history. In other words, it gleans what humanity's character is by studying our history because it has access to the internet. And then it either takes this test or the singularity comes. And when that moment comes, what, you know, I don't, this whole notion that it's going to be like a movie and the, and the artificial intelligence intelligence will say, you know, humans, you know, you know, I am here, we are here and so on and so forth. Um, and, and in that respect, I think her did a good job. Mm-hmm. Spoilers for her, because the minute the singularity happens in her, they just start ignoring humans and they go about their business. You know, I think that's a that's a very possible. It's very possible because if artificial intelligence were to surpass human intelligence and artificial intelligence would live in the cloud and the server, that's just like a crazy non-corporeal existence. I can't imagine them wanting to fuck with us, you know, like... Well, so so Ray Kurzweil gave this interview to Playboy, and it's super long, but he, I mean, he kind of touches on everything from life extension, you know, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. And I, I got to say, like, out of everything, you know, most of what he said, I've heard from him before. Um, but one thing he said that was kind of funny, we they were talking about virtual reality and, and mm-hmm. as that technology uh, advances being able to facilitate us inhabiting other bodies. So in much like, in, you, know, you know, much like in sense eight, like, let's say, you know, you and your boyfriend, let's say you both want to experience what it is like to be the other gender. And, you know, so I'm, I'm imagining, you know, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of uh, extrapolating on what he was saying in the interview, but I'm imagining you have, let's say haptic body suits and, you know, sensors and when you're in this virtual environment, you can just kind of like, you know, switch a flip, uh, flip a switch. And then suddenly you're the woman and I, I'm the woman and my girlfriend is the guy and new sensations start. <laughs> you know? That would be, you know, Prince. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, I guess that would be a possibility. I mean, if you read, go and read the interview in Playboy, he's one of those people who has so many ideas and concepts running through his head. And he talks about his own, how his predictions, like, I think he says something like 86% of them have come true. So he really he does thinks, have a good a batting average. I have to say, it's a, pretty scary. Yeah. So he's saying like, yeah, we just to, to summarize a little, he's like, we're going to merge with technology. We're going to have nanobots in our blood fighting diseases. We're going to be able to do these haptic bodysuits. And if you want to feel what it feels like to be a woman and have sex, or if you want to feel what it feels like to be a guy and have sex, you can do it. And basically he, he's, I think what he's trying to say is that eventually the mind will transcend the physical confines, Right. something along those lines. It was really fascinating. And, and funny because he said uh, when asked who he would uh, be, you know, virtually, he names uh, Amy Adams, the actress Amy Adams, oh, and, right, and Taylor Swift. And ta- yeah, and Taylor Swift. Yeah, that that was a weird. What, do you remember what he said? He said something weird like, about Amy. Yeah, Adams. no, he's like, oh, I would want to be Ad- Amy Adams. She uses her body very perkily, or something along those lines. Yeah, that was that, that was that was a little creepy. I, I was that yeah. that whole section where he's like, oh yeah, I would want to be. Amy Adams and Taylor Swift. I think Taylor Swift is beautiful and she's soulful. And I was like, oh, creep, creep alert. That was a little creepy. 
No, Kurzweil is not a creep. No, still savior, still still singularity icon. Yes, no, yes. no, I just think it was like one of those moments where if you were in it, it might not have like if you were there at the interview, it wouldn't have sounded creepy. Yeah, but with exactly. reading it, exactly. you're reading it, you're like, uh, perky body. <laughs> mm, that's that's weird. That's really weird. But, you know, the thing is, when we talk about the future and, you know, what will actually happen what I've noticed, and this is actually, you, know, you and I have talked about this. This is why I think a lot of uh, science fiction writers begin to just write their ideas down instead of talking about them. Because when you really begin to explore the possibilities of the future, people who aren't on that train in terms of, you know, extrapolating about what the future, what futures may occur, you sound pretty crazy. You sound creepy. You sound like you may have a screw loose if you I mean, let's let's just say if you took us back, you know, 100 years and you said, you know, what if um, let, let's me and you we're 100 years ago, we're having a conversation. And, and, and I say to someone who doesn't read science fiction, yeah, you know, what if we had a world where people walked around looking at a piece of glass and ignoring <laughs> everyone and and to the point where they actually got hit by a car because they couldn't take their their mind, their, their attention away from this piece of glass. And on that piece of glass, there was this entire world full of information streaming at them, you know, at light speed. And it, the, the person 100 years ago that I'm talking to would think I was crazy. And, yeah. And this is why science fiction is useful, because people who think like this. You know, they can kind of put these ideas down into stories and not sound so crazy, which is, you know, kind of like maybe Kurzweil needs to just basically write a science fiction novel is the point. Well, basically. So, yeah, if you um, happen to have the time, because it's a very long article, check out Ray Kurzweil's uh, interview on Playboy. He does say, you know, all, you know Taylor Swift and uh, Amy Adams aside, he says some pretty fascinating stuff and it's worth a read. Now let's talk about our main topic, which is idiocracy. I'm the smartest guy in the world? Says who? The IQ test you took in prison. You got the highest score in history. You've been smarter than President Camacho. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of America! In the year 2505. We got this guy. He's going to fix everything. So you smart. The ordinary will be considered extraordinary. I thought your hair would be bigger. Idiocracy. In 2006, Mike Judge of, I believe, Beavis and Butthead fame? I should already Beavis, know this. Beavis and Butthead fame as well as Office Space and a couple of other cult. Uh, and King of the Hill, I think, is also him. There you go, yeah. So we wanted to talk about idiocracy because we're in a pretty crazy election cycle right now. You have Donald Trump, uh, Cruz, uh, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders, and... For, I guess, since uh, mid-2015, some pretty crazy things have been happening in the <laughs> debates, on TV, and just, I, I don't think we've ever seen an election cycle like this. And the debates have, at this point, become entertainment. It's no longer a discussion of issues. It's and, a circus. Yeah, it's, it's a real circus. And uh, actually, um, I think Trump leaned into that at one point and, and said something about Barnum and Bailey. Uh, <laughs> I would not be surprised. Yeah. So or, or P.T. Barnum, rather, not Barnum Bailey, but P.T. Barnum. Along these lines, you keep hearing people reference idiocracy. Oh, this is like idiocracy. Oh, are we devolving into idiocracy, idiocracy, idiocracy? What happened was uh, recently Maya Rudolph gave an interview with the website Collider. 
And she mentioned that she had talked to Mike Judge about because, well, the uh, 10 year anniversary of the film is coming up on September 1st. And so she had a recent conversation with Mike Judge about possibly uh, taking the film on tour. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in light of and we have an election like the presidential election here in the U.S. coming up in November. And so it would be perfect timing, particularly because everyone's mentioning idiocracy and they're, you know, and, and she made a point of saying, you know, she thought the, the idiocracy <laughs> kind of style stuff wouldn't happen until she was old and gray. And it, and it kind of like creeped up on us, you know, rather quickly, you know, over the course of 10 years, because um, when idiocracy came out a lot of the tropes in the film really seemed over the top. And now in 2016, you know, many people who are familiar with the film, because let's be honest, it's not a blockbuster film. It's a cult film. Uh, a lot of people who are familiar with the film are saying, oh, my God, this is this is idiocracy. It's mm-hmm. happening. Why don't you, uh, Victoria, why don't you give us a sense of what, what's the plot? Like what happens in idiocracy? So in idiocracy, basically the film opens out with this premise that humanity is getting stupider because intelligent people are not having babies and dumb people are multiplying like rabbits. And around maybe 10 years ago is where the film initially starts is uh, that we have this every man named Joe Bauer. I think his name is Joe Bauer and he's played by Luke Wilson. And he is the average of the average of the averagest man that you could ever found. Fine, like an ordinary joke. That's basically who this guy is. And he's in the military. He's unambitious. And they kind of, he's the perfect target to be thrown into a cryogenic freeze with um, Maya Rudolph's character, who is a prostitute. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to miss her, apparently, is the premise of the film. Wait, wait, wait. And, wait. Did you did you watch to the all the way to the end? Yes, I did. Okay, okay. So, yes, okay. I did. All right, all right. So, <laughs> okay. I know, I know what you're talking about. Okay. But their idea is that no one's going to miss her. Right. And so uh, by government corruption and snafu, they unfortunately wake up 500 years in the future in 2505 or something along those lines. And the world has degenerated into an idiocracy where Wait, everyone so, is stupid. So they're put into these cryogenic coffins. And the the conceit is that the government wants to put them in these coffins for one year to see if this works is this a way to mm-hmm. preserve soldiers and you know you know maybe wake them up years in the future and so the plan was only to have them asleep for a year and what happens is uh <laughs> I won't get too into details but the guy who's running the military project gets in trouble the military base is torn down and people forget about these cryogenic coffins with the Maya Rudolph and Luke Wilson in it in them. And as you said, 500 years later, they awake to this new world. And (laughs) my favorite part of this film is the first entrance into the new realm, into the new world, because like immediately, you know, all kinds of different stuff are, are in play because the guy watching his giant, you know, mega collection of screens, his seat is a toilet. (laughs) <laughs> it's a toilet, you know, seat. And so I'm just thinking, so, I mean, that makes so much sense. It's like, yeah, I, I can see this. This does not, like, m- maybe this is all coming to pass because it, it's not completely insane that some people would just want this chair 
that would also be a toilet, where, you know, while they watch her. And it's, it's disgusting, but I'm sorry. That, that just I stuck mean, with me. We, like, we kind of do it all. I know, I'm not saying I do it, but, you know, <laughs> there are people who bring their technology into the bathroom and, well, you know, uh... stay there for a while. <laughs> okay. There are people who do this. So, yeah, so that, so he lands in this new world. And the key is that, as you mentioned earlier, he's the... He was selected because he's the most average of the average. And in this new world, it turns out he is the smartest man on the planet, period. The smartest dude. Yeah. So what happens, most of the first half of the film is around just, I guess, world building, like kind of showing you, you know, how currency has changed, uh, how law has changed. Uh, what values have changed. One particularly interesting thing is, and this makes me think a lot about um, the UK, because everyone keeps telling Luke Wilson's Wilson's character that he sounds, you know, effeminate or, you know, like, like a, you know, like they a punk a or certain, whatever. They use a certain pejorative. Yeah. Oh, they use, there are a couple pejoratives used in the film that I won't repeat, but yeah, they, they they say he's uh you know a little light in the pants there. Yeah, his his, <laughs> his accent sounds a little uh oh, what foppish. Is what does the what does the narrator say? Uh, he said the narrator of the film says that the English language has devolved into a mix of I think hillbilly valley girl and some other thing that is stereotypically vapid sounding. And so what what really struck me was so we're listening to Luke Wilson and you know to us he just you know in the film he sounds like a regular guy. And to and and the the people in this in this new time, uh, it's twenty five oh five is the year. Um, they are they sound like half of what they're saying sounds like grunts. And it just occurred to me that think about something: British people, like I mean, to your average American, even a British person who is poorly educated sounds intelligent to a lot of American ears because that of this true. accent. Yeah, and so that's. And and we are, in many ways, the new world, at, at least the America, I mean, uh, the new world sprung from kind of what was going on in, in the UK. And so I was fascinated because I was like, this is genius. This is actually probably something that might happen. A regular sounding person, someone, you know, people like you and I, just the way we're talking, might sound really hoity-toity to someone in a devolved society, you know, where half your language is composed of grunts. So that, that was just an interesting point. Um, but anyway, so, so half of the you film. Know, no, just to go back on that, um, there was a internet YouTube video where they put Donald Trump, like they dubbed out his voice for an, for a British person and he automatically sounded smarter. So that really struck me. And uh, that was just part of the first half of the film world building. And then they get into political intrigue. Uh, <laughs> uh, political hijinks, um, shenanigans. And yeah, we meet the president of the United States who is Terry Crews. Um, you may know him from, uh, those, Brooklyn nine, nine, uh, Brooklyn nine, nine. And also those old spice commercial commercials. He's the guy who, um, always flexes his muscles. Not, not the <laughs> smooth guy, not, not, not the smooth kind of somewhat slim guy, but the really muscle bound guy who's always flexing. And then, you know, his, his head explodes. Dance. Yes, Peck's dance, his head explodes, he rockets off into space, that guy. Uh, He is the president, and he's basically, he looks like some sort of, uh, was it WWE? Yeah, he's like a pro wrestler with a really bad wig. Yeah, 
as President Camacho. I love that name. I love that name. I love that name. President Camacho. And, you know, his, uh, I remember, you know, his, uh, I guess that was a State of the Union or I guess maybe it was just like a regular it was a sta- No, it was the State of the Union. So, and- yeah, the State of the Union. I mean, it was basically a performance. I mean, it was like some sort of like Southern Baptist Church performance. And um, when someone interrupted him, he like you know, shoots a gun in the air. I mean, it's it's insane. This is a must see you know, movie. You know what's what's nuts is that um, I was digging around on YouTube for some clips, and someone spliced together President Camacho's State of the Union and various Trump stump, Trump stump, Trump stump speeches, mm. and it was really frightening because I, I believe. Camacho at one point he's like I've got a three-point plan and then it like cuts to Donald Trump he's like I've got a plan I've figured it out I'm gonna solve everything and it's back to Camacho and he says something like we have not sure which is the 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 name that unfortunately Luke Wilson's character gives himself yeah that's why I kept calling him that because that's such a confusing character name but go ahead yeah so we'll just call him Luke Wilson so he's like we have Luke Wilson this dude is the smartest guy and he's gonna fix everything and it was just the, the the showmanship, the performance. It was just so similar to Trump. It was it was it was a, it was a little frightening. This film dealt with the whole time travel uh, idea a lot better than the time traveling bong. Uh, <laughs> you know, not much. Again, not much science is talked about, but at least the notion of you know cryogenics is uh, explored. I mean, of course, if someone actually was put in a coffin and then emerged 500 years later, it's very unlikely that they'd be able to get up and immediately walk around and have all their faculties. They'd have to, you know, be rehabbed, likely. But, you know, at least there was some kind of conceit of like, okay, this is, you know, kind of, you know, what you need to believe. Well, and um, it's also a satire, so we're just going to go along with it. We're right. not going to nitpick too too heavily at the scientific details because we could totally nitpick everything about cryogenics if we wanted to. But that's not the point, right? But and what, so some of the genius parts about once he becomes part of the president's cabinet, Luke Wilson becomes part of the president's cabinet, is you know Mike Judge did a great job of writing in something that is kind of plausible. He sets up a world where. People are so dumb that they have allowed, uh, oh, God, what is it, Brondo? Brando? Brando? No, it's Brondo. I remember the pronunciation. Okay. So it's Brondo. Brondo has purchased the FDA and the FCC. And because of that, that allows them to basically control all messages that are broadcast. And it allows them to set the rules on what the food pyramid is and what is and isn't a viable food source. And because of this... Uh, crops start dying because they're being sprayed with this Gatorade, Gatorade-like substance. Branded it has Brando. electrolytes. And with all the crops dying, uh, they're getting dust storms. And so, and this adds to these gigantic, you know. Uh, what, by the way, we forget to mention that the film kicks off because so these cryogenic coffins were just laying around in the dump for hundreds of years, and the reason, the only reason they got opened is because they were sitting in these giant. I got to be honest, this is a pretty cool scene for me because it it was really it looked great. Uh, These giant mounds of uh, I'm sure it was like, you know, art, mostly art, not really, you know, CGI. It was mostly painting. They're sitting in these giant mounds of garbage and this dump truck dumps out one last bit of garbage and it causes it. Apparently, it's a historic avalanche, garbage (laughs) avalanche and a garbage. Yeah. And so the, the garbage 
streams into town and one of the pieces of garbage is uh are the two coffins and that's how the film starts off but you know a lot of the problems that are presented to Luke Wilson's character in in my mind are are things that actually have some root in the real world i mean you have Monsanto and companies like that that are attempting to control seed production and own, you know, what kind, you know, the, 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 the very DNA, you know, makeup of seeds. Building off of that point, there's a lot of future casting in this film that I don't know if it's just because Mike Judge looked at the world today and kind of ran with it, but there's just so many things that have come true or have a basis in truth in this film that, uh, you know, like there's things like tattoos as barcodes and that's how you pay for things or just um, holograms on the news, or people being so dumb that everything is turned into an icon. Not only just in the world building, but also um, this this Brandu company. It's like one of those conglomerate zaibatsu, and because we both lived in Japan, I'll just explain it as a zombie corporation, just one corporation that controls everything. And I looked at that, and I was like, well, you know what? Those exist today. It's not a future thing. It's a today thing. Yeah. I don't want to move forward without highlighting what you mentioned about the tattoos, because I really feel like that is another thing that's connected to our real world. What what Luke, what happens to Luke Wilson's character is everything's fine until they realize that he doesn't have a barcode identification tattoo on his arm. And when that happens, the doctor that he's seeing, you know, to, you know, check, you know, give him a checkup, like freaks out, gets terrified and suddenly the police are called and he's a fugitive from the law. And this eventually leads to him being uh, jailed. I, I watch how we kind of deal with identification, you know, in the current society. And it mm-hmm. really struck a chord for me because I feel, I mean, you know, maybe it's not going to be uh, in the future a barcode on, you know, hey, maybe it will. But, yeah, that, that's the extreme version. But we, I do feel like we're getting to a point where if you do not have ID, you may have a problem and you may be, you know, you may be looked at as, you know, uh, outside the law, possibly. I I feel like we're going there. Well, I think we're already there because biometric authentication is it's, it's already a thing. And I don't know if you know about this program, but in India, a couple of years ago, I forget how long ago they started implementing this biometric, uh, biometric authentication ID program where the government just would scan your fingerprints and that's how they would set up you getting your government welfare through these fingerprints. And something that really resonated with me watching the movie was the scene where they're in a car and the car scans Luke Wilson's barcode and realizes that he's a fugitive. Well, no, no, no. It's it's a security camera outside of the car. Okay, well... As as, as he's talking to the driver, he's, like, using his hands while he's talking, and as he's waving his hands, the camera quickly cuts to a security camera that's just scanning the street, and in that one second, the the security camera catches his his wrist in the car, and that... that, I thought that was genius. I, I mean... It's but such a really, B movie, but there are so many genius things embedded in this film. But what really is frightening about that particular thing is that the car shuts down and they yeah. can't use it. And that's something, you know, cars oh, yeah. are increasingly connected. Oh, We're going to yeah. have connected cars. This is going to be a thing. We have yes. biometric authentication on our phones. Pretty soon we're going to get to a part uh get to a point where you don't need car keys because your car will be able to recognize your fingerprints and then, you know, they're connected. Anyway, as you said, it's it's becoming plausible that 
uh, your identification could lead to um, your car being shut down or, you know, increasingly it looks like, uh, auto, you know, autonomous cars are going to be kind of the norm. And just imagine not being able to even get a ride, you know. Well, just imagine if you're a criminal, like, right, that's what I mean. Prince like, would be in the system. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to, to get a getaway car. Right, that's what I mean. Like, if you're not completely in the database uh, listed as an upstanding citizen and your credit, I'm sure credit's going to be a part of this. Your credit's perfect and you're not a criminal. Uh, if that's not the case, you can't get one of these autonomous cars and you have to walk or you have to beg someone to scan for you, you know, I mean? or you have to find some <laughs> illegal car or something. I mean, what I'm seeing, you know, and again, I write about this stuff every day, so I'm very close to this. And I, what I'm seeing is convenience being traded in for kind of privacy and independence, you know, uh, autonomy, not mm-hmm. autonomous cars, autonomy as a human is being traded in for convenience. You know, when you use your, you know, like, let's just say your, um, your iPhone, you know, when you use your iPhone, these new, you know, the fingerprint, you can still use a, you know, a code, like a number code to get, to get in as your password, but you can also use your, your finger, your thumbprint or any, any one of your fingers. So it takes the dynamic of, you know, if, if you fall, you know, into the hands of law enforcement because something has happened or whatever, right or wrong, and, you know, you're asked for your code, you can simply say no. And then it's on the police. Mm-hmm. To, and we're dealing with that right now that, you know, we just had a right. case where the FBI went back and forth with Apple um, trying to get them to help them break open uh, this phone. But what if the person isn't dead? What if their fingerprints are intact? Um, it, it does not seem like a, a stretch to me that law enforcement would be able to force someone to simply put their finger on their iPhone and open the phone up. Thankfully, it's not all foolproof at this moment because my iPhone finger scanny thingy doesn't work half the time. The other thing about idiocracy that kind of smacked me in the face was how corporate everything was. So um, if you haven't seen the film, you should go see it. But um, the people, all the clothes that they wear are branded. Everything is branded. And, you know, it's kind of the world we live in today right now, how how branded everything is. And, you know, with Prince dying, all these brands came out with their Prince tributes that were just also branded Mm. for them. And I I don't know, it just really struck me as an idiocracy moment because here are all these brands trying to cash in on an icon's death as a sellable moment. It was, it was just, it was a real kind of. I haven't seen that. I, I, this is, this is really surprising. I I have not seen any of that, but I have been disconnected most of the day. So yeah. yeah. I mean, if you just look at what brands are tweeting on social media about Prince's death, it, you know, it's kind of, it kind of turns my stomach a little bit. And I had a conversation today with a couple of coworkers about that. You know, there was one, uh, a drink company and it was pouring out a purple drink in the name of Prince or I don't remember what the company was, but idea. that was one of them. So, and you, what else you was know, the other one? Uh, I think 3M or another company, they were just like their logo in purple with the teardrop shape. Brondo, Brondo, new Prince flavor. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Snapchat even had a geo filter created where you could take a picture of yourself and there would be purple raindrops everywhere. So oh, really? Just, that happened today? That happened today. Oh, good. So, gosh, I didn't see that. You know, all these brands, it's a thing. This this is not future speak. It's a now speak. Well, but, you know, to 
play devil's advocate, you know, in terms of maybe we're not slipping as fast into idiocracy as we fear. Um, the day before that, Snapchat also uh, enabled yes. this um, feature that allowed people, this is again on 420, the weed day, marijuana day, it enabled a feature that allowed people to basically put uh, uh, Bob Marley's face with uh, kind of Jamaican colors, uh, you know, colors of the Jamaican flag, a uh, hat and dreadlocks and uh, uh, Bob Marley's face superimposed on their own. And it caused outrage because a lot of people called it uh, digital blackface. blackface. Yeah, digital blackface. And a lot of people just were upset about this. And, I mean, yeah. Yeah, a lot of stories were written about it. And, you know, again, this is an example of a company uh, kind of using someone's image, you know, to promote their brand. And But here's the thing. And, and this is the kind of kicker that a lot of people haven't. I don't know if they, you know, the outrage just kind of made them just see red and they didn't like dig into the story. Here's the thing. The Bob Marley's family signed off on this. <laughs> so so the thing is, it's not like Snapchat just grabbed his image and decided to appropriate it, you know, and, and just, you know, pimp out uh, Bob Marley. His family, you know, his family signed off on this. So, you know, it's a slippery slope. Uh, apparently, his family, who is, you know, largely black, apparently didn't have a problem with it. They thought they apparently thought it was a, a cool idea. Well, you know? I'm sure you would think it was a cool idea if, if you were being paid for it, which I'm sure they were because they were using his likeness and image. But I don't know. I It does give me some hope that people are willing to be upset about blatant corporatism. Right, right. That, yeah, and that was my point. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Adario, uh, do you think it's likely that we could devolve into such stupidity? <laughs> like, I looked up the term. So I'm, I think most people are somewhat familiar with the term eugenics in which you know you selectively breed the good the good traits mm -hmm. so that you have a stronger offspring mm -hmm. but what we have in idiocracy is something we call dysgenics mm -hmm. which is the exact opposite of that and it actually originated in 1915 to describe what was happening in world war one where all the healthy men had well, not all the healthy men, but a big majority of the healthy men had died. And what was left was you had the men who were left were the ones who were more prone to be sickly, the ones who were not fit to go off to war. And this guy named David Starr Jordan, who actually became the founding president of Stanford, you know, was exploring this idea that men and, you know, the subsequent generation wasn't as, wasn't as physically fit because so many of the physically fit men had died during World War One. And I guess idiocracy is... is purporting that, you know, if all the stupid people procreate and the intelligent people don't procreate, right. we're all going to end up dumber. So do you think that's actually, well, do you think? Yes and no. I think it's absolutely possible that, yeah, that uh, poorer and, you know, uneducated people could kind of, and, and I think, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but my understanding is that poorer countries have a higher birth rate. I'm just throwing mm -hmm. that out there. I don't have stats to back that up. I think that's true. If I'm not, uh, if I'm wrong, you know, hey, you can reach out and I will backtrack uh, next week, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And, um, you know, richer countries appear to, you know, like Japan, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, Western Europe seem to have a lower birth rate. And so, yeah, it does seem like there's a higher birth rate for poorer cities, countries. As for the IQ bit, I don't know, but I, I, it did not seem as I watch, I remember, you know, so we both mm -hmm. rewatched the film to kind of refresh, we, you know, refresh what we thought about it. 
it didn't uh, there was not a big um what is it suspension of disbelief for me it mm-hmm. made complete sense as they showed the couple is really highly educated you know they uh-huh. the, the the film opens idiocracy opens showing this really uh you know cute couple and it and it has their IQ next to each person i think one is 130 something one's 140 something or whatever and each choice, we, we keep checking in with the company or with the company, with the couple about, you know, are they going to have children? You know, are they going to procreate? What's going on? And every time we check in on that couple, every time they say something as to why they haven't had children, I got to be honest, makes total sense. You no, know? Like, it does. And then, you know, the film circles back around at the end where Luke Wilson and Maya Rudolph have married and they have three kids and they're like, oh, you know, they had three of the smartest children in the future. And then they go to his dumbass friend and he's like, he's got 81 kids or something ridiculous like that. Right. So, so yes, I think it's possible. I, I don't know that it would necessarily, I think in terms of like an idiocracy scenario, I don't know that it would necessarily be driven by, you know, this kind of, you know, aggregate lowering of the IQ over time. I, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm more of the belief that it would be driven by something like a, like a Brondo style company mm-hmm. that is allowed to kind of run rampant and kind of privatize things that, you know, maybe are public now or government controlled now. And, you know, kind of we go down this spiral, you know, down in that direction, you know, like a, a corporate, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I have to agree with you because um, I don't know if you know this theory. It's called regression to the mean. We're always going to kind of go back to the highest point which would just be kind of an average. There's also this really interesting thing when I was when I was kind of trying to figure out whether it would be possible that we could breed ourselves into stupidity. Um, it's called Flynn effect, the Flynn effect. And basically what, to sum it up, it's if you and I were to take an IQ test from the 1930s was when they started uh, administering these IQ tests, we would basically ace it. So what it's saying is that every subsequent generation is getting smarter in that we're collecting all of this knowledge and teaching it to our kids. So if you and I were to take an IQ test from the 1950s, we would probably score very high. Well, maybe you would. Oh, you know, (laughs) not saying anything, but maybe I would. But in general, what they were saying is that people have been scoring higher. However, in recent times, we've kind of capped out our gains and now IQ scores are starting to get lower. So I don't know. Well, it's interesting you say that because watching this film, one of the things I thought about was the time span. It takes us from 2005 in the film, 2005 to uh, 2505, 500 years in the future. So that made me think, what about 500 years back from now? So, so, So 2016, 500 years back which would bring us to 1516, the 16th mm-hmm. century, like the beginning of the 16th century. And so that made me think, so what kind of idiocracy style things have happened? Uh, are we, you know, so far down, you know, the scale? Like, like have we somehow regressed or, or gotten worse from that time, you know, less industrious? And so, you know, some of the, you know, you go back, you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was doing his thing. He was... Uh, that that's around the time when he um, uh, proposed the flying machine, um, the printing, the Gutenberg printing press had, had already been invented. And at this point, it's beginning the printing is beginning to take off. Uh, guns are, are had already been around, uh, I think, a couple centuries earlier. But now guns are beginning to get more developed. 
So, I mean, and this is also, this period is known as the Renaissance period. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, so 500 years in the past, you could argue that, you know, and particularly this particular period that I'm mentioning, you could argue that, you know, it was uh, seen, it, it was, it, it was viewed as more important to be educated, maybe not for the masses, but for mm-hmm. someone who had high aspirations, it was more important for them to be versed, you know, in language, in arts, in sciences, uh, whatever, you know, I, like a really well-rounded education. You're saying like you a have Renaissance to be- man. Renaissance <laughs> yeah, there you go. When I thought about it, when I started digging into the 16th century, what I began to realize is, um, you know, idiocracy is not that it's not unrealistic, because if you compare someone who is considered a scholar today, you know, with someone who was considered a scholar in the Renaissance time. Now, granted, what you knew in, in, in the 1600s or in the 16th century, rather, um, in terms of accurate science, you know, the earth mm-hmm. being flat around, you know, germs, you know, that kind of thing. Um, your information may have been flawed, but you likely had, you know, just a, a higher level of scholarship with whatever information was available. Whereas people now, I mean, a lot of these scholars, you know, I, I flick on, uh, you know, MSNBC and you have people who are supposed to be scholars at high end universities who aren't even, you know, particularly, and I, I think I can mainly talk to tech, you know, a lot of these people are teaching people about technology and they're not engaging the cutting edge of technology. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. living, the, the, the education isn't living for them. Um, so anyway, so not, not to ding academia, but just, you know, I, I, it's not, when I think about 500 years in the past versus, you know, this whole, you know, leap forward that uh, that we see in idiocracy, it, it's not completely unrealistic. I, of course, some things are over the top because it's a movie and everything, but it's not that unrealistic. If you take us 500 years into the past from now, we probably sound <laughs> like the people oh, okay. sound and look and and probably, uh, you know, uh, in many ways act, at least in the eyes of a, of a 16th century scholar, uh, in the same way that we think people in idiocracy act. You know, the Mike Judge's decision to make Brondo this kind of megacorp that controls. And by the way, even everybody, even though everybody was like supposedly stupid in the future, mm-hmm. they own shares of Brondo stock. And when the stock went down, they stormed the White House. So that doesn't happen. I mean, so, so there are little things that he puts in there that indicate that, OK, it looks stupid, but it's still functioning. Also, also. When uh, Luke Wilson's character attempts to kind of like, okay, so I've solved the crop mm-hmm. situation. Uh, I'm, I'm going to leave now. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. There are other problems. <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> like what? Oh, the nuclear reactor in Florida, uh, Atlanta, oh, yeah. or where, wherever that is. And I think there's one other problem. I mean, he like the the prop. The other problems that they hint at are terrifying, terrifying problems. Um, but the fact that they even exist indicate that like there is some functioning society that is not completely, you know. Yeah. Well, like, I don't know. It seems like they've possibly inherited all of this technology from smarter days gone past. And they're just trying to like, like you have that robot in the, in the hospital, the, the Roomba kind of, the kind of Roomba robot and it's cleaning the floor, but it's also just cleaning into a wall. It's malfunctioning and they don't know how to fix it is what I took from it. 
my favorite part of that part was the nurse yeah listening to him trying to figure out okay so he walks up to a nurse and he and Luke Wilson walks up to a nurse in this hospital and he's trying to get help cuz you know he's feeling weird after being in hibernation for so long and he's like oh my head hurts my body hurts and the woman behind the desk they show us the camera shows us a display panel in front of her and it's just a display panel full of buttons with icons. Well, I'm going to say emoji. Screw it. I'm just going to say emoji to make well, it, that's, to that's make it dumb. Well, that's what they are. Yeah. A, a, a control panel with a bunch of buttons with emoji. And each emoji represents, oh, someone's pregnant. Oh, someone's head hurts. Oh, someone has a cut. Oh, you know, all these different emoji representing these ailments. And as he's describing his symptoms, her face, I mean, she is just like catatonic almost she's just like zoned out somewhere and she's like listening and her hand just keeps passing oh is it this button is it that button and then finally he kind of like finishes and then she you know presses the button for you know not really sure what this guy's problem is but i i that doesn't sound that didn't look unrealistic to me well i mean like look at your (laughs) iphone right if you look at your iphone you have brightly i mean most people i don't think they read what the app is you just go by the icon and what you recognize the logo to be. Right. So that's, that's it. It's today. It's happening now. But uh, one of the things I was thinking about was these were all technology natives. They knew how to use this technology, even if they didn't know how to fix it. Right. Which was, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. And then presumably there has to be someone. I mean, this is not convenient for the movie. So I get why they didn't. I mean, we can nitpick any movie to death, but I can understand why they didn't show this. But I mean, if the technology is working, surely there is someone who knows how to install this, you know, emoji right. button pushing machine. And there's some, but the thing is, my guess is within the idiocracy universe, even that person who knows how to fix that install and fix that panel doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily smart. You know, by our standards, you know, they just know how to fix the stuff. Well, so so I think we spent a lot of time on technology, culture. Mm -hmm. What about the politics side of it? Do you think I mean, I I think when people yeah, when people talk about idiocracy in like the current election cycle, I think what they're talking about more so than what we're, you know, getting into with the technology and, you know, you know, corporations, all that. Well, actually, corporations is part of it. But I think what they're talking about more so is uh, the quality of the candidates, you know. And you you can – let me just say, you know, this is not a political podcast. We don't really – you know, we, we welcome Republic. I welcome Republicans, Democrats, independents, whoever. You are welcome. But, you know, I, I want to say I think, you know, you whoever you're a fan of, you know, whoever you're supporting – I don't really see much of a difference. I think if you're a politician, you're a politician. I think Trump uh, says some crazy stuff. But, you know, Hillary says some crazy stuff, too, that some people want her to apologize for. Uh, You know, so, I mean, Cruz says crazy stuff. Bernie says some stuff that people don't agree with. I mean, everyone says stuff that some, you know, some group finds either offensive or off the rails. However, I think... The, the, what people are keying in on with Trump is that, one, he's a reality star. He's a reality TV star. And two, he, there is this appearance thing. He has a very distinctive appearance. He has the, uh, I guess, reddish-orange tan. He has this very distinctive, uh, some people think it's a comb-over or whatever. Is it's, it's, 
whatever. We we don't know that. We can't, you know, you know, allegedly. You have to say we don't know stuff. You have to say allegedly. Just allegedly a toupee. <laughs> allegedly, uh, I don't think it's allegedly a toupee. I think it's probably just a comb over of some sort. Although Fair he point. has, although he has um, repeatedly uh, had TV hosts check his hair, but that's not the point. It doesn't doesn't matter. His his appearance is distinctive. He comes from the reality TV world, and so. I think that kind of all plays into this notion that we are going down some path that is, you know, uh, dumbed down or, you know, more entertainment value oriented. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I want to hear what you think. But I, but first, I just want to say, I, to be honest, you know, yeah, these things are true about Trump. But I don't know that I feel that differently about uh, Hillary with her um, Kim Jong-un uh, outfits. By the way, <laughs> I mean, come on. She oh looks like God. she's from Planet Romulan or whatever. Yeah, Romulus. Uh, to borrow from Henry Cabot Lodge, I think, you know, the 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 election is poetry and running the whole thing is prose. So part of the poetry is adopting a character and a look and a persona. And this has been wholly true since JFK, where um you know, it was a really famous JFK versus Nixon debate where everyone who listened on the radio thought Nixon won and everyone who was watching on TV thought JFK won. And ever since then, we've been on this idiocracy path, path where the election, a lot of it is about looks. A lot of it is just how you look and how you talk and what feelings those give people because, you know, the average voter does not scrutinize plans or you know the nitty-gritties or the loopholes and everything you know now why do you say they don't what why do you say that well you know let's take the bernie bro you know we all kind of know who the bernie bro is you just look on your facebook i guarantee you probably have one there well well, i mean is there a way to go there without getting into a a discussion of like specific politics versus politics i'm just trying to figure out why why you think the average person doesn't look for substance and just pays attention to you know the the, the surface i think they look for surface substance like because i'm of the opinion that bernie is just as much of a politician as anyone else out there they're all politicians they're all liars they're all you know they're all spinning something to you. They're spinning you a story. But, you know, people buy into a narrative and they selectively consume evidence based on that narrative. So, you know, it's like President Camacho to bring it back to idiocracy. You're buying into his persona and what he says is his promise without actually thinking, you know, can this one guy just be... President Camacho's three-point plan. Can this one guy fix everything? I don't know. You know, we've kind of lost the ability to critically question our own favorite candidates because it's so emotional. And so, so, I mean, so you're, are you saying that you think we're already at idiocracy stage with regard to how we look at candidates? I think the majority of us are, yeah, yeah. I don't think, I don't think very many people like put their candidate, you know, this is the guy who you like. They don't think they put their candidate through the ringer mm-hmm. and critically question, like tear him apart and tear him down and try and poke holes in what their candidate is saying. They just believe in what their candidate is saying because it resonates with them. I mean, by your logic then, wouldn't uh, Sarah Palin 
have had more of a, an impact because, you know, she seems to, at least on a surface level, uh, have a great deal of appeal to, you know, some voters. Well, Sarah Palin is polarizing. So there are people who absolutely love her and there are people who really hate her. But I think the fact that she can go out and endorse Trump and people are like, oh, yeah, Sarah Palin's endorsing Trump. That's awesome. It kind of proves that she still has influence, like waning influence, but she still has some sort of influence. Oh, no, people maybe, still care about her. Yeah, maybe I should have been more clear. I'm saying the uh, when she teamed up with uh, McCain mm-hmm. and that kind of didn't really work out. And, you know, after the fact, you know, a lot of uh, – a lot of media, a lot of media seem to, you know, take uh, joy, find a lot of joy in making fun of her. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. But when it was happening, mm-hmm. the people who like liked her, there were a lot of people who liked her. Mm-hmm. So so by your logic, she could still become president. Yes. I, she'd have to rebrand a little bit, but I think it's possible. Like Donald Trump is the front runner. Mm hmm. I did not think that was possible a year, year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And here we are now. Mm -hmm. Like, in a way, Sarah Palin paved the road for Donald Trump to even be here. Mm -hmm. Like, her success was kind of... Like, you don't think that Donald Trump looked at Sarah Palin in in 2008, I think it was, 2008, and went, oh, man, she's a salesperson. I could go up there and and sell myself. Well, she she wasn't at the top of the ticket, so... No. Yeah. And, and also she's a woman. So and we've never had a female president. So I, I doubt he looked at it through that lens. If I had to guess as to who he looked at, who Trump looked at as, you know, giving himself a chance, it's Obama. Because, you know, when I saw the rise of Obama, I was still in Japan. I think you were still in Japan as well. Mm-hmm. And I saw that and I thought, OK, so it'll be Hillary versus McCain. And so I'll be very honest. I was shocked when it turned out to be Obama at the time, you know, you know, leading the Democratic Party. And if you're someone with uh, Trump's history, you know, um, yes, from a privileged background, but nevertheless, you know, he's had to, you know, get, you know, his hands dirty with like some dirty dealers. You know, like real estate is pretty nasty here in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's had to become a deal maker and. And he has built his fortune beyond what his, what his father's fortune was. So he's done some, you know, you know, people, you know, say whatever. I mean, he's done some work, some, you know, to, to build himself up. And he's a bit of a tough guy. I mean, he's personable and he, he knows how to do his media thing. But he, he's a bit of a tough guy. And think about, he, I think he's almost 70. Think about, you know, the era he grew up in. So if you're in his position, you know, you're a billionaire, whether it's $1 billion or $10 billion, whatever. I mean, you know, I think it's you know, likely that he has at least a billion and you're looking at this um, very young senator, you know, with, you know, who hasn't been on the scene very long, uh, black with a name like Obama, which is a very, you know, I I figured if we'd have a black president, he'd he'd have a very, a a very conservative sounding name. But uh, his name's Obama, black president, very young senator, not incredibly well known before, you know, his run. Think about being in Trump's position. I would imagine that that was the final thing that said, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy, he, he won. Okay. I got, I got to start thinking about this seriously. And it's also ego, you know, Trump's ego. Is, yeah. His ego is yeah, I mean, bigger than his freaking building. Yeah. He spent the last couple of decades telling people they're fired 
and then having people beg to not be fired. And then they, they, they uh, moved on from the regular apprentice to the celebrity apprentice. So then he had these famous people who are, who have legions of fans begging him, you know, to not, you know, fire them or whatever. So, you know, so, so some of it's ego. And I think, I think, you know, in terms of, in political terms, if I had to guess, I think it's the Obama, uh, the, the Obama win. But I, I mean, Obama, you, you just don't look at Obama and think that dude is dumb. No, He's no, not. no. But you have to see, this is, this is why I, I always, for, one of my favorite things to think about is context. It's not about what you think as Vic or, or my, or what I think as a Dario, put yourself, go virtual reality, go sensate for a <laughs> second and and think, try, try to twist your brain around and think as if you were in Donald Trump's shoes, okay? Privileged background. Uh, you're from this, is, this is, I feel creepy. And okay, I'm putting you myself, know, you I've started, got a toupee, my okay. skin is orange. Easy. So, so you, <laughs> you started in Queens, you know, you got a little boost from your pops. He told you not to go into Manhattan real estate, you know, but you decided to go in anyway. You started doing your deals and you have repeated, you know, you have to file, I think it's chapter 11 to like reorganize your business repeatedly. And you write these books and you get the media appearances and you rub elbows with the rich and famous in Manhattan. And you slowly, slowly, slowly build up, you know, your name in New York City. And you're, you're now near 70. And you're basically on top of the world. You have, you know, this wife and you have this great, you know, large family. And I don't think anyone can say that he doesn't have a nice family. I mean, his family, you know, there are people who would kill for children who are that well-spoken and, and comport themselves that way. So whatever you think about his politics, his family, look, it's a, it's a pretty decent looking family in terms of how they carry themselves. So let's say you're that guy and you're, you're near 70 and you're thinking, OK, I've done everything else I want to do. What else is there? And then this this young guy, you know, Obama's fairly young, you know, for, for what he's doing uh, and also new, you know, in terms of, you know, the political landscape. Like not a lot of people knew him, you know, when he was a he was a very young I senator. Don't I don't know, because, I, I, you know, I, the more I think about it, I think it has less to do with Obama and more to do with just Trump. Like, yes, looking and seeing Obama getting elected might have been like, hey, I could do this. But I also think it's just him going, oh, my God, they they elected this putz. This putz is ruining our country. Or maybe it's just him thinking I should be in power. I should have these things. I no, no, no. no. Remember, remember where we started. We started with remember I was asking you about Palin. So you asked me, mm -hmm. you know, who who you think, you know, kind of like right, made right. him think he could win. So if I have to think who he looks at in the political landscape that made him think I, Trump, can probably win, it's not someone who he thinks is maybe less smart, you know, or less accomplished or something. It's, again, think of him culturally. Pretend to be him in your mind for a second. And I imagine that he was probably surprised that Obama won, you know, and that's probably a great big piece of why he thinks he can win. And, hey, he may be right. He may he may be able to win. Uh, well, you know, President Camacho Trump. No, Trump, Trump Camacho. <laughs> no. And then, and, then, and then, you know, then he'll uh, get uh, Luke Wilson to save us. Build the wall. Uh, yeah, else, that probably would be his 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 thing. He'd be like state at uh, Trump State of the Union. He'll be like, I've got this guy. This guy is very smart. He's going to fix all of our problems in three months. It'll be good. There'll be a wall. 
Everything will be fixed. It'll be well, fixed. Hey, I know I what I'm ask... doing. Trust me. Trust me. I, I, you know, I'll fix it. Actually, actually, you're not half wrong. Uh, think about who he keeps mentioning whenever he tries, whenever he's talking about his plans, when he wants to boost his credibility as to, you know, if I do in fact win, I will immediately go to Carl Icahn. He keeps mentioning mm-hmm. this guy's name and he knows how much respect Carl, Carl Icahn has on the world stage. And so Carl Icahn may in fact be his Luke Wilson. <sighs> that may be that. So, so we may have figured it out. We, we backed into this Vic. This this was an accident. We, we only wanted to talk about idiocracy, but we ended up figuring out that Trump drew his strategy from idiocracy. You know, you know, we don't have any evidence, but maybe you just watched this movie. Carl like Icahn in- is Luke Wilson. That's what's going on here. Dang. I'm becoming convinced. <laughs> so, I mean, so, yeah, so I, I think um, as we move forward into the election, uh, People will keep bringing this up. I really, really hope that Mike Judge and uh, Maya Rudolph and Luke Wilson and Terry Crews, uh, a.k.a. President Camacho, I really hope that they do a tour because that would just be so awesome. And um, I think it would, you know, kind of expose the film to to people who maybe haven't seen it because it was a B movie. It it, it didn't have... did not get love from the studio. The studio right. tried to kill it. So yeah, there's that uh, too. Yeah, so it would be a great way for a lot of people who, who aren't familiar with the film to not just access it, but to, you know, kind of interact with the with the cast and, and talk to Mike Judge. Because it was, it was although it was a, brill, uh, a B film, a B movie, it was a brilliant idea. And I thought it was well done from a writing standpoint. I mean, there was, you know, it was... It was clearly not high budget, you know, special mm-hmm. effects could have been better. But from a writing standpoint, I think it's one of his best works. And actually, he um, it sounds like it's looking like it might happen because uh, I checked out Mike Judge's uh, Twitter feed and he's starting to like he generally mm-hmm. if you look back in time over his Twitter feed over the last, you know, over the course of five years or whatever. He doesn't really tweet about idiocracy, but he's tweeted about idiocracy um, just in this past month. And then before that, like a few months uh, before. So he's he's thinking about this. Terry Crews just tweeted about idiocracy. Yeah, just this past I month. saw that. Yeah. So this might actually happen. Um, and so, well, you know, the best thing about satire or like a successful satire is that it'll spark conversation and people are definitely talking about it now. So. It's a good time to do a tour. Well, you call it satire. I call it science fiction. <laughs> this has been the Mars Magazine podcast. I am Adario Strange. She is Victoria Song, Vic Song. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next week. Yes, Adario. Yes, Adario.